0: Welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and today I have a co-host, Bailey, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Mitchell. I don't know how I found her. She says I must have seen her on Instagram, but I'm so happy to meet her because she's not only an internal medicine doctor, but she's board certified in like the most important specialty. I think a doctor can have a lifestyle medicine. And she's an obesity specialist, which until like a couple months ago, when I interviewed Dr. Jamie Kane, who was on the show, I didn't even know there was such a specialty. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Mitchell. It's so nice to meet you in person. Well, I mean, you know, close to being in person.
1: Yes. Hi. Thank you so much. It's, it's lovely to meet you. And this is as close as in person it, it gets these days. So Absolutely. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you know, you're, you, you, that you did lifestyle medicine because so many doctors just don't even have a, well, I don't want to say have a clue, but they don't take into consideration that the things like what we eat, you know, that these, these lifestyle factors are are so important, maybe the most important thing to our health outcomes, but especially people struggling with weight, I think.
1: You know, definitely. And uh, not only weight, but really almost all the chronic diseases that we think about are really lifestyle driven. And I think that's probably for two reasons. One is, you know, that's not the focus in medical school. Right. It's about learning the pharmacology. Yeah, we learned about what goes wrong. And then what we were taught was, you know, well, these are the different medications for the different things that we can do. And there's surgery and all these different options. and then I think the second reason is because I think a lot of times we don't give people enough credit to be able to make the change because it's true that it's driven by the person or the patient, if you will, and it's a uh, physician led or guided, but it's really up to the person who's sitting in my exam room to say, okay, I'm ready to do the work because they're the ones doing the work and all the changes, but I'm there to help empower them with the tools. So um, I think there's a lot of reasons. I don't think it's that people don't care. I think it's just that that's just not been the model. So there's a lot of us that are flipping the model now.
0: It's interesting. I heard you say about the patients doing the work and that's a very telling saying because a lot of patients, a lot of people don't want to do the work. They want the doctor to do something, do a surgery, give them a pill,
1: Yeah, and you know, there is a role for that too, in the right setting. And I think that it needs to be a partnership. So, you know, the way I look at it is um, I do my part, which is to guide, which is to share evidence-based medicine with people. And, you know, sometimes we do need medication as well, but perhaps sometimes the idea needs to be to convey to the person who may not know that, hey, if I have high cholesterol and I'm getting put on a medication, That might be the solution right now, but there's some things that I can do too from my end that might help me to optimize it or to be able to get off this medication. And so that's where that shared decision making process and empowering people with the knowledge that there are things that they can do is the place to start with it, I think.
0: Right, but even where, because I have a special interest in weight loss because I used to be obese and I just, I find the whole topic fascinating and it seems like a very necessary topic with two thirds of the population being overweight or obese, but even with medications and even with surgeries, the patient still has to do something after. They can't, it's not not like take a pill and you're thin or get the gastric bypass, you have to like continue doing something to maintain that weight loss, right?
1: Yes, for sure. So I do use medications in my practice to help my patients. And I think that one thing we have to do is remove the stigma about people who struggle with weight. First of all, it's very complicated. And it's not as simple as oh, you just didn't have the willpower to eat less and move more. We know that that's not the case. Um, There's a lot of different hormonal changes and uh, dysregulation of hormones that stop acting the way that they should when people struggle with weight gain. And it's very, complex. Yes, it's about our nutrition. It's about our mindset. It's about how we're dealing with stress. Are we turning to food for comfort? Are we addicted to food? Are we managing our stress in other ways? Um, You know, maybe there's some reason why we can't be physically active anymore, or perhaps it's that those bad habits have set in. Um, And then of course, there's the hormonal dysregulation that occurs with that progressive weight gain, Um, sleep disruption, Uh, you know, all these different factors that are yes, lifestyle related, but they're not so easily fixable either, right? So we have to kind of take a very comprehensive approach when we're looking at a person and saying, okay, these are the things that we're going to work on in a very progressive way. And uh, these are the small steps that we're going to take to get to where we want to be, because you can't just flip a switch and things change overnight, but medications have a role and surgery has a role, but lifestyle has a role. And I think that for the people who have struggled with this, they know that even when they take medication, yes, it's not a magical solution. It's a tool that helps you get there. Surgery is a tool, you know, um, the exact number slips my mind, but I think it's about 47% of people within the first five years after gastric bypass surgery, regain weight, right? So why does that happen? Well, it's because those old habits or those lifestyle changes may not have happened in the way that like you just mentioned need to be happening also you know your body tries to get you back to where you were there's something called a set point and it's determined in the brain and so it has to be an ongoing uh, follow-up and an ongoing plan but yes all the lifestyle changes have to have to be happening in conjunction with whatever treatment one is
0: pursuing absolutely like i know there's been a lot of movements health at every size But is there a relationship between health and weight, at least for most people?
1: There is. And, you know, I will say that, um, yes, there can be health at every size. But for most people, there is a relationship between weight and their metabolic health. And I will also say that there can be people who are unhealthy, who may not have criteria for um, excess body weight. Um, A good example of that is people who store, say, all their weight in their midsection, and they have a normal BMI, but they're actually accumulating excess amounts of something called visceral fat, and that leads to diabetes and metabolic syndrome, which is high blood pressure, high cholesterol, increased risk of heart disease, fatty liver disease, insulin resistance, and guess what? Their criteria don't even meet for obesity, right? So we can't only use weight. We have to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And there is a you know kind of section of the population that might have criteria for obesity and maybe they're called metabolically healthy. But I will tell you that there are also still some physical issues that could occur like increased pressure on the knee joints or the hip joints. Um, increased risk of a certain weight related cancers, um, obstructive sleep apnea, trouble breathing. um, You know, so those things are going to be kind of related to weight, Uh, but yes, it's not the end all be all. We have to dig a little bit deeper and we can talk about what those things look like. Um, and I will say that uh, body positivity, I'm a big proponent of that. Uh, you know, this is, it becomes a medical issue. It's not just about your willpower or your, uh, you know, lack of judgment. And we should always respect everyone, no matter what their body size. And it's just about, kind of empowering people with the tools that they can make those changes to become healthier. You mentioned
0: visceral fat. So that's, that's, we don't want that. Subcutaneous fat, maybe it's not appealing to some people, but that's not as dangerous, correct?
1: That is correct. So the visceral fat is the fat that we store around our midsection, around our organs, our heart, our liver. And the reason why that type of fat is dangerous is because it, Well, first of all, when it's being deposited in those areas, it's typically because there is some issue going on. So we have a threshold. Everyone has a threshold for how much fat they can gain before they start getting visceral fat. And for certain populations, like for Asian people, Hispanic, we have a less when I say we because I'm of South Asian descent, we have a less threshold where we start to gain weight, and then it immediately starts going towards visceral fat. And that fat is very inflammatory, and it releases um, certain chemical factors and hormones in our body that drive inflammation. And that actually increases risk of type 2 diabetes, heart disease, stroke, um, all the bad stuff. So visceral fat is definitely... Uh, something that should be looked out for. And of course people may ask, well, how are they supposed to know how much visceral fat they have, right? Um, So of course one could go and get a DEXA scan, which is the gold standard. Most of us aren't gonna do that. And you'll see fat deposition around those areas, but you can also simply check a waist circumference. So you just have a tape measure at home. You measure at the area that's um, at the very top of our hip bones. If you put your fingers there and kind of go, and for most people it's around the belly button, you know, so if you consistently kind of look in that area, measure with a tape measure. And if it's increased, and there's actually a great chart. um, If you Google Harvard uh, waist circumference by ethnicity, you can see where that falls because it is a little bit different. Um, because for African-Americans, Caucasian, um, and Hispanic, I believe it's 36 inches for women greater than 36 and greater than 40 inches for men. That's an increased metabolic risk for Asians. It's 31.5 inches for women and 36
0: inches for men. That's interesting. Cause I, I listened to a couple of your podcasts and you said that, that BMI is not really the best indicator for uh, as it's, a tool. Yeah, it's
1: really not. I mean, I think it's a good screening tool. You know, everyone has an electronic medical record now. So when you get the weight, you get the height, you kind of get a quick and dirty measurement of, uh, okay, well, how much weight is a person that is at this particular height carrying? But of course, weight is not weight, right? We could have somebody who's very muscular and has barely any body fat, and they might come out as having obesity, but clearly we know they don't. So that's where body composition... I think plays a role as well. And that can be measured through um, a different means. So of course we have waist circumference, which will give us an estimate of visceral fat. We can do body composition analysis.
0: Um, In my
1: practice, I have a body, Bioelectrical impedance scale. Uh, there's
0: some. I love that. I, I've had that done. That is the like that is the gold standard. If you ask me, uh, there was a doctor that <laughs> used to speak at my conferences, Dr. Carrie Saunders, and she worked for a company that that actually does this everywhere. Although you have to like find it where it is, and that that really is the best. If you're going to weigh yourself, that's how you weigh yourself, right? Not on a scale.
1: Yeah, I think it does definitely give a lot more information because it's going to tell you how much muscle you have and how much body fat you have. And I think that that helps people target their weight loss goals because, you know, they see that uh, maybe they're gaining muscle and they're losing body fat. So maybe their weight hasn't changed that much, but their appearance has and their measurements have. Well, guess what? Their body composition will show that. And so that's where I think it's a, it's a great tool to go beyond BMI.
0: Right. And it's not invasive and it's not expensive.
1: Right. And, um, a lot more, uh, I think doctors, well, there's some doctors, some of us have those kinds of scales. A lot of times your local gym might have that type of scale that you can use. Yeah.
0: That's neat. So how did you get interested in obesity medicine? Cause I didn't even know that it was a field. Like I said, until two months ago, when I interviewed a doctor for the truth about weight loss, somebody was on an obesity session. I'm like, well, what's that? You know,
1: Yeah. So, you know, my, my, my journey began really as a internal medicine doctor. I used to work in the hospital. I would see people coming in with, you know, a lot of the end result of things that weren't treated um, from a prevention standpoint or, you know, so people coming in with heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and amputations and, you know, all those things. Um, And I loved what I did, but I always felt like, gosh, you know, like, I wish I could do more on the prevention side. Uh, Eventually I had the opportunity to just come across the field really by incidents. I became a medical director of a medical weight loss clinic. They were looking for somebody and I thought, well, you know, this sounds really interesting. And so I became involved in that and, Um, I saw people making changes and coming off of medication. And that was like really exciting to me because I knew they were treating the root cause. You know, I was helping to reverse things and treating the root cause. On a personal level, I really was always interested in weight management and prevention and nutrition because I myself really kind of, uh, since the teen years, struggled with my weight. And I think that I, um, you know, I always understood the kind of personal aspect of it and how we feel, but to be able to pair that with the medical side of things was really important to me. And uh, that's how I got involved. And then through the years I did a lot of different types of medicine and I knew that this was eventually where my path would go. And so two years ago I decided to just completely do this. And that's what I, that's when I started my own practice, but that was, kind of how I got there. I was going to ask
0: you if you if you had if you, either you or your or family members were or ever over, suffered with uh, being overweight and if that's what got you interested because if you if you were you probably should have much more uh, understanding or sensitivity or compassion knowing that how difficult this is for people.
1: Yeah I did I did personally and then of course I've had a, a lot of family members deal with heart disease and diabetes and, um, unfortunately those are all driven by that, um, kind of low threshold of that visceral fat. And I knew that that metabolic health component was
0: really important for us to be uh, addressing. Here's a very interesting question from Tiffany. Who's watching live. What's the best way to get rid of visceral fat? Is it the same way you would get rid of subcutaneous fat or you have to do something different?
1: So, you know, um, the bottom line when it comes to kind of the nutrition aspect of, uh, or the weight loss aspect is about what you eat. Um, and of course there's a lot of other things that are uh, playing a role there. So number one, regarding visceral fat, um, a lot of times when we talk about visceral fat, we're talking about insulin resistance. And so this is something that it's a process where when we get accumulation of that fat to begin with, it's like a perpetual cycle that gets worse. And the insulin resistance means that your body is not listening to insulin anymore. So insulin is a hormone that we release in relationship to our eating, when we eat carbohydrates that are very high in sugar. So those can uh, release it, protein does, and we're supposed to release insulin. We're supposed to take the blood sugar, bring it down and store it away. Well, guess what? That gets stored as body fat. So for visceral fat, what we need to do Is choose the carbohydrates that are going to be higher in fiber. And so that's going to be your vegetables, your fruits, your whole grains, cutting out processed food is a very good place to start. And I know that may seem obvious, but um, it's amazing how You know, you might think of certain things like certain beverages, like, you know, those fancy Starbucks drinks, they have as much sugar or sometimes more sugar than a Coke. So you might think, well, I've cut out Coke, but what about this? So cutting out, you know, anything that's made with white flour, so like your all-purpose flour stuff, your processed foods, your high fat, high carb, you know, burger and fries, things like that, that. That's always a good place to start, but also focusing on what to add, right? Half your plate. Vegetables, um, fruit throughout the day, whole grains, um, plant proteins, you know, come with fiber as well. So that would be one place. Number two, uh, physical activity. So we haven't really talked about that yet, but um, exercise is really important, not just for calories burned, but actually for insulin to be able to do its job better. So when we move, our insulin sensitivity improves, and that can help to drive down visceral fat. Um, And then, you know, to touch on some things that we're going to talk about later, but stress management, making sure you're getting enough sleep, I know those things may sound kind of weird, like how's that going to help me with visceral fat, but it, it addresses
0: that hormonal aspect of things. So that's where I would start. When you talk about insulin resistance, is that similar to, I sometimes hear people say metabolic resistance, are they the same, are they similar?
1: So I never use the word metabolic resistance, but I think that that would be the same thing. And basically what that means is, you know, when we accumulate uh, fat in our muscles and in our liver and pancreas over time, two things happen. Our muscles stop listening to insulin. And so that's what resistance is. And then we um, have to release more insulin in order to overcome that resistance. So we're getting a huge signal to store body fat. Number two, what happens in the liver is the liver is actually supposed to make make uh, make sugar for us, glycogen, and it's and it and it also takes uh, sugar and makes fat out of it. Well. When we have insulin resistance, that process becomes dysregulated too. And then our liver starts making excessive amounts of uh, triglycerides, which is a form of fat that gets spilled over into our bloodstream. And then that's kind of a perpetual cycle. Eventually our pancreas burns out uh, because it can't keep up. That's later down the line. So to answer your question, yes, it's the same thing. And it's the same process, but it happens really slowly over many years. And a lot of times people don't realize that
0: that that's going on in their body. So I can't, I, I should have worn my glasses because actually I read it wrong. I was going to ask you about metabolic resilience and, ah, yeah. and to vein. So what, what is that? And how does that relate to our health?
1: Yeah. So, you know, uh, metabolic resilience, I thought it was so interesting one day I kind of had this like, aha, you know, moment where I, 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 I was reading about this, uh, the concept of resilience, right? Because, basically the definition of resilience is to be able to bounce back, right? For a body to recover its size and shape after deformation. And so if you think about it throughout our life, we have all these different stressors, right? And the common denominator of every cell and our metabolism is our mitochondria. And so when you look at all the different things that we're talking about, whether it's stress, whether it's emotional stress, mental stress, Um, you know, these excess body fat, especially the visceral fat that we're talking about lack of physical activity, um, you know, things like caloric overload, like when we're eating all this stuff, right. All the time, or when we have disruption of our circadian rhythms and our sleep patterns, what is the common denominator there? It's that our mitochondria become less efficient and they're not as resilient. So that's where the term metabolic resilience comes in, because it's basically saying, how can we make our body able to adapt to these stressors? Because we're going to have stressors in our life, but how can we optimize our body and our metabolism through the effects on our mitochondria in order to be resilient and not develop those problems like the diabetes and the heart disease and all the
0: cancers and things like that? Well, well, speaking of diabetes, what, what causes it? Because there, there are people that are not overweight that have it, but there are, it seems there's a preponderance of people that do have excess body fat that, that do have it as well.
1: Yeah. So there's of course the type one diabetes, which is juvenile. And that's the one that, you know, is completely driven by a different mechanism. They just have a pancreas that unfortunately doesn't make insulin anymore. So that's that's not really the diabetes that we're referring to today. Um, The type two diabetes or adult onset, and you know, we call it adult onset, but the sad reality is that we have a lot of children that are unfortunately now developing adult onset diabetes um, because they're uh, unfortunately um, having this process happen early in life. But uh, where it is is basically, or, or what it is, is basically this insulin resistance that we're talking about. And when that sets in, Uh, Our blood sugars eventually go up uh, because our body isn't able to keep up with that anymore. And then we uh, get called type 2 diabetes when our labs show a fasting blood sugar that's over 126. Um, But this process really honestly takes seven to eight years to occur, and there's
0: a lot we can do beforehand to prevent it. Great. Well, here, here's a very, you guys make right the best questions. And it's it's a live question from Dana. How do we know if our metabolic health is in a good place or not?
1: Yeah. Hi. Hi, Dana. That's a great question. So, you know, a couple things, I think that um, number one, knowing about your waist circumference can be helpful, body composition, and then going to see your doctor for preventative labs, you know, so there's a lot of things that Um, on our labs might start changing when we start developing issues with insulin resistance and with our metabolism. Uh, Number one, I was just mentioning to you the fasting blood sugar. Unfortunately, that is something that goes up much later in the Uh, spectrum of what we're looking at, but that is something to look at. Number two, um, hemoglobin A1c is a lab test that can be done to look at someone's average blood sugar. Um, Insulin levels are something that I do check in my practice because they go up way before the blood sugar goes up. So that's something that um, that I look for. Um, When people check their cholesterol panel, um, if they start having derangements in their cholesterol, that can be indicative of a problem with your metabolic health, high blood pressure. So those are all different things that one can um, have a conversation with their doctor about to look at things from a prevention standpoint, specifically people who have things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, maybe a strong family history of type 2 diabetes. If you have had Um, Also a history of gestational diabetes, so diabetes during your pregnancies, that can lead, that, that does lead to an elevated risk of those kinds of problems with one's metabolism. And then I forgot to mention earlier on the labs, if somebody has elevated liver tests, of course there's a lot of reasons that can be happening, but unfortunately often nowadays it's because of something called fatty liver disease. And so that's something that can also indicate a problem.
0: Nice, thank you. Do you think exercise is important for people that are trying to lose weight? Because I, I interviewed the the founder of the co-founder of the National Weight Control Registry, and what I learned from him was really interesting about that.
1: Yeah. So you know, um, as far as weight, so there's kind of three different times, right? There's weight loss, which is a time when we're losing weight, weight maintenance, and then prevention of weight regain. <laughs> so uh, for weight loss alone. Um, exercise is not as predominantly important in the beginning. Now, I'm not saying that exercise is not important and I'll go back to that in a minute. But in the beginning, the nutrition aspect, creating the calorie deficit, working on all those other things is really important. But exercise is really has been shown uh, two things. So number one, in, in terms of weight loss, about 400 minutes a week. So just for the people who are listening, who may not know the general recommendations, just for like, say health, for cardiovascular, for heart health and for prevention of uh, diabetes and things like that is 150 minutes. So That means 30 minutes, five days a week, plus two days of muscle resistance training. So for weight loss to occur, you have to be working out about 400 minutes a week. Now for prevention of weight regain, that number is about 350 to 400 minutes. and in the National Weight Control Registry for the people that they saw who were most successful in keeping the weight off. So that's where it comes in is during weight maintenance, they were doing about an hour a day. So um, that's where I I stand from the standpoint of just say uh, weight loss and, and exercise. Of course, we know that exercise has so many benefits to us beyond weight loss in terms of heart disease prevention, diabetes prevention for strength for mobility for fall prevention,
0: you know, all those things down the line. Absolutely. How does food relate to our metabolism and our gut health? Cause I've, I've got gut on the mind because I just finished the GI health summit and that's all I've been thinking about lately is, is, my, gut, <laughs> yeah. is my company. <laughs> it's
1: huge. There's a huge connection, right? When people say we are what we eat, we truly are what we eat. Um, But I think that now we're, it's a very exciting time because we're learning so much more about the fact that it's not just about calories in calories out, but it's about how our body responds to the food that we eat. Right. And that missing link is perhaps being answered now in terms of gut bacteria. And that goes to our gut health and that gut microbiome, that huge, you know, mass of bacteria and viruses and all these (laughs) pathogens, Well, they're not pathogens, they're actually helping us, but they're um, organisms that live in our gut and they eat what we eat, right? So when we eat certain foods, we're getting certain beneficial substances that those gut bacteria produce that actually affect our metabolism and our weight and how much inflammation we have in our body. And then they are also sometimes producing substances that aren't so great for us in those terms. And so definitely um, what we know is that fiber. So, you know, number one, eating more fiber um, is beneficial to our health, not only from a heart disease and mortality standpoint, but also colon cancer risk, um, you know, uh, certain, we we know that um, the, uh, I think it's the WHO has declared, um, it's a category two, you know, recommendation as far as meat in general being uh, cancer causing, but we know for sure processed meats Um, are a type one risk of developing cancer, um, especially colon cancer. So, you know, there's a definite link there. And the the things we know is that fiber, so high fiber foods are going to be beneficial. Uh, You know, when we talk about plants and you know, when you look at a plant and you just say, well, these are the carbs, this is the fat, this is the, you're missing out on all the phytonutrients and the antioxidants and all that discussion, right? Because those have beneficial effects on our body from a reduction of inflammation and giving us certain vitamins and things like that, which also affect our metabolism. And then of course, when we talk about meat, you know, um, meat is a big part of a lot of people's culture and diet traditionally. And, you know, I myself am plant-based. I try to meet people where they are, but we know that uh, certain substances that are produced, uh, when our gut bacteria process meat, where there's one called TMAO, it drives cardiovascular risk and inflammation in the body and diabetes. And so, you know, there's, some, there's something there. I know we're learning more and more, but we know that if we can maybe eat less meat, eat more of uh, the fruits, vegetables, um, and plant-based proteins, we can help to shape our gut bacteria that would benefit our
0: metabolism. Great. Thank you. Here's a question from Pat. Where did it go? They move so quickly when I see, cause I have different. Okay, here, <laughs> no, it was about liver. Yeah. Fatty liver. Uh, I, I, if I see it, then it just jumps. Okay. Where did it go? It was in blue. Sorry about that. It was something about how do we know if I have, okay, here it is. It was here. And then it went away. Sorry, Pat. There it is. Where did it go? Was it... Here you go. Oh my God. Where it with that? Yes. They were asking whether, how they can test for it. Their doctor wanted them to have a liver biopsy. I believe is there, a, here it is. What test do I need for fatty liver disease? A doctor suggested a biopsy to the liver. Eeks.
1: So, yeah, I mean, if you're being recommended to get a biopsy, Pat, then definitely there's something serious going on because they don't just, you know, kind of recommend those, um, lightly, but typically, um, you know, a lot of, there's a few ways why a person might Uh, think that they might be at risk or a doctor might raise the concern. Uh, Number one, if they do see that a person is suffering from something called metabolic syndrome. So if you have a combination of things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, which is a type of cholesterol in the bloodstream, low HDL, which is another type of cholesterol. Um, If you have a lot of uh, accumulation of body fat in the midsection showing signs of prediabetes or diabetes, your doctor is gonna be on high alert for, okay, are the liver tests going up? If they are, then they're going to think, could there be fatty liver? They might recommend initially a screening test called an ultrasound, right? Which is just to take a picture of the liver to see how much fat has accumulated in the liver. Sometimes they'll just make the diagnosis based on that. But if you have certain uh, you know, criteria uh, that they're concerned about, uh, especially if they're, if it's been there for a while and they're concerned about something called cirrhosis, which is kind of the end stage of having um, fatty liver over a long period of time, then they might recommend something like more invasive, like a biopsy.
0: Wonderful. So uh, we have a doctor watching, Dr. Do you know Dr. Siri Chan calls up? I do. Hi. Hi. She's watching, and, and she was a Wonderful. previous guest. I love when I well, I love when anybody watches, but I especially love when previous guests and doctors come back. I really appreciate the support, so thank you. So here is a very interesting question from Elspeth because I think uh, you know I've had a lot of psychologists like Dr. Lyle um, who would say don't say anything, but she says, "What is the most supportive way to talk to someone who is obese and could benefit from a whole food plant based lifestyle?"
1: Well, I think first of all, you ask for permission to have the discussion. I think that's really important and it can be, and I'm answering it as a, as a, as a doctor, right? Of course, in my practice, people seek me out for that, but say for a general primary care doctor, you know, I'd like to today talk to you about your weight and its relationship with your health. Is that something that you would be open to discussing today and get permission? If they're not ready yet, then maybe you just file that away as something you bring up the next time when they're ready to talk about it. Um, Number two, uh, you know, speaking from a very non-judgmental standpoint is really important. And then number three, you know, letting them know that uh, there are tools that you're going to give them and that you're going to help them come up with an action plan. Now, whether that's in your own practice or maybe you're gonna refer them to a obesity medicine specialist who can really offer them a very comprehensive approach. I think too often uh, because of time constraints, lack of knowledge, you know, the fact that people don't really know that this specialty exists, um, you know, people might get told, well, you know, you probably need to lose some weight and here's a handout on something, uh, but it's not going deep enough. So I think that's number one. Now, this question was specifically about a whole food plant-based diet. You got to first see where somebody's starting, right? So doing a nutrition assessment, understanding how are they eating currently? And uh, number two, telling them about the fact that, hey, you know, if you do this type of lifestyle, these are the benefits to you. And then assess their readiness on making perhaps small changes so that they're not just going from, this is my lifestyle to now I have to go and live a whole certain new way, which can be very overwhelming. So I think showing them the benefits, but then also understanding and giving permission, to get there in their own time, I think is really important. And, you know, food is really personal, right? We have a lot of um, emotional relationship with food and cultural. And so I think the best way is also to take something that they've really enjoyed and not saying, well, you're never going to eat that again. But to say, hey, here's a way that you can prepare it. That's going to be better for you. It's going to be more whole food plant based. And you're still going to be able to enjoy those times with your family or those bonds or whatever, you know, that were related to that food.
0: Right, you know, I, I was obese till I was 52 and I never had a doctor say anything to me about my weight until I broke my knee and was complaining that I didn't want surgery. And he said, well, have you ever thought about losing weight because every pound you're overweight, it's five pounds of additional pressure to your joints. But, you know, I wish doctors had said, you know cause obviously I was and, and nobody said anything. So I, I, I don't know, I think it's, you're in a tough position though because, you know. <laughs> As a doctor. If no, they, you're,
1: you're right. That does happen. And I think that it's a, it's complicated, um, you know, the doctors who do this. So a lot of us are um, working to help empower doctors to be able to learn how to have the conversation. I think a lot of times they they're like well we don't want to offend somebody or we don't want to get into that because then we know that's going to be a really long discussion that we don't have time for today. Um, So you know I think that 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 awareness has to be brought to the medical field so that people are able to have that conversation because we got to address it like it's the root cause of so many problems but it has to be done in a way that's non-judgmental and respectful. And again, meeting the person where they are. Maybe you would have been ready to have that conversation early on, but nobody bothered
0: to ask. That's right. But I would think if if, if you have as part of your what you offer is obesity medicine, they, they they might seek you out.
1: Yes. So definitely I would say that, you know, a lot of doctors do, of course, refer as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of times it's um patient-driven. And I think it's really hard because when you're struggling with that, uh, the the weight loss industry, if you will, I mean, oh gosh, there's so much stuff out there and it can be so confusing. And there's a lot of stuff out there. There's just a, you know, the Instagram ad that's just to, you know, serve to you, to get you to buy their product and play on your vulnerabilities. And I think that um, it's, uh, it's really important for, uh, that's why it's really important, I think, for the medical community to really step up and fill that void so that it's not getting filled up with all sorts of random things uh, that, is, that are really confusing for a person to have to go through. And And not to say that n- none of those things work, I think that they can, but it needs to be done in a strategy that's long-term, right? People do these kind of crash diets, or they do something that, you know, you know, these guaranteed 20 pound weight loss in one month, well, then what, right? And that maintenance strategy, and that sustainable approach, and that long-term, you know, vision of how is this going to, you know, sustain, because we know most people who lose weight regain it, right? And there's a lot of things that go into that, and I know you having been somebody who has gone through that process and maintained would know that it, it's not just like
0: magical. You, gotta, no. you, you, you work. actually have <laughs> to do something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh. You know, I, I, this is my 321st show since the pandemic started, and, I, and every episode I learned, I, I could write a book, I learned at least one thing I didn't know. What blew me away when you had mentioned that there's charts now, and it's so great for different ethnicities, which like, duh, it's about time. So here's a question, I apologize if I don't say your name correctly, deepthi I think, says, I've been whole food plant-based for 10 years in a weight maintenance mode, but really would like to kickstart the weight loss and lose those 15 pounds. I am Indian, so I still have fat around the stomach. I exercise regularly. How can I lose that weight around my stomach? All my labs are perfect. Okay.
1: Hi, Hi, Deethe. I know that that can be um, a bit of a struggle. And first of all, commend yourself on what you have accomplished because most people who lose their weight have you know regain it. So first of all number 1 celebrate your wins. Uh number 2 uh you know it and of course you know none of this today is medical advice and I'm not seeing you so it's 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 hard to say but some of the places to check in right as far as um when you're trying to like get rid of that last 15 pounds is Number one, you did mention that your labs are pristine. So again, that's great. So keep an eye on those. Uh, Number two, maybe do the body composition analysis. Perhaps you have more muscle than you think, and that's a good thing. With that weight around the midsection, I know that can be pretty stubborn, especially being a South Asian woman, um, a fellow South Asian woman. I know that's where we tend to gain it. Um, So number one, checking in with your you know, sugar intake. I know that you said your whole foods plant-based diet, but I think a lot of times we might be overdoing the sugar, even with the occasional indulgences. That's, you know, one place to look, especially being South Asian. I think a lot of times our Uh, our indulgences, you know, could be higher, higher sugar, just culturally speaking. Number two, uh, you might be exercising, perhaps with the exercise, adding more uh, muscle resistance training can sometimes help if there is some underlying insulin resistance, Uh, step up the exercise, mix it up, you know, our bodies get used to things. So Uh, Mixing it up can be helpful. Number three, looking at sleep is always important. Um, You know, during our sleep, we, yes, we rest and we repair and it's important for a lot of things, but there are actually metabolic effects as well to lack of sleep. And so that's something to look at. Um, Next is stress management. So, you know, when we were talking about metabolic resilience, you know, one of the things is that our lifestyle, the way it is, right? It's always, we're always being chased by the lion, right? We're like running from one thing to the other, to the other. And stress is a driver of, uh, of weight gain and specifically that insulin resistance, because we drive up our cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone. And over time that contributes to dysregulation of the insulin in something called insulin-like growth factor. And so, you know, twofold. Number one, when we are constantly stressed, we're going to release hormones that lead to weight gain. But we also sometimes turn to food as a coping mechanism. You may not be doing that, but someone else might be. So stress is important to check in with. And then um, last is, well, I mentioned sleep. So, you know, disruption of sleep. So those are just some things that you can check in with. Uh, that might be uh, contributing to that stubborn kind of weight gain around the midsection.
0: Nice, thank you. So Catherine Mm. asks, what amount of weight loss per week is reasonable and healthy for women over 70?
1: Ah, good question. So for women over 70, you know, we're really trying to make sure that we're not uh, losing a lot of weight very quickly because, you know, when we lose weight, especially at that age, um, it's affecting our bone health, right? So it's really important that you keep up with your muscle resistance exercises and things like that to maintain that bone mass. Um, and then, as far as like a rate, uh, you know, typically about half a pound a week would be very conservative. Um, it, you know, it's very specific to how much weight somebody potentially would need to lose. I think it's important to to remember that a five to 10% even weight loss can result in very positive effects on somebody's health. And so, you know, if you're in the 10 to 15% range, it's not really about the the rate as much as what the total weight loss is, but especially at that age, I would be concerned about anything more rapid than about half a pound a week.
0: Wonderful, thank you. So uh, uh, at least three people watching live are saying that their cholesterol went down, but their triglycerides went up. Do you, can you give a, some idea why that could happen?
1: Yeah, so not knowing the context of, uh, of how that happened, uh, typically triglycerides, when those are going up, that's indicative of that insulin resistance issue. So, that's where I would spend some time, you know, working with a with a doctor to kind of figure out why that's happening. Uh, but typically, um, excess sugar uh, in the diet, insulin resistance, those are the things that would lead to that type of change happening on a person's labs. Of course, there's people who have familial issues with triglycerides, but it sounds like if if the you know, cholesterol is going down but the triglycerides are going up, that's somebody who maybe didn't have high triglycerides to begin with. So that's where I would hone in on that um, evaluation to kind of see what's going on.
0: Thank you. Anne says, are there grains or legumes that the doctor recommends not to eat until weight loss goal is reached? And then maybe just in general, um, are there any foods that you recommend for weight loss or maybe that you recommend not not to lose weight?
1: Okay, so to answer the question first, as far as grains are concerned, I mean, if you're doing something that is very low fiber and high sugar, so, you know, things like the all purpose flour, um, you know, processed grains that have been stripped of their natural fiber, those are definitely ones that I would be wary of because they do spike our blood sugar, especially for people who do have insulin resistance or, you know, things like that. When we're talking about just weight loss alone, you also want to be looking at your portion size. So, you know, just in general, right, of everything that you're eating. And so, um, you know, in the end, we do have to create what's called the calorie deficit, right? Well, we only have carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, right? Every food is gonna be a combination of those three different macronutrients. Um, you know, certain grains like your um, quinoa, say, you're gonna get some protein in that, you're gonna get some carbohydrates, you're gonna get some fiber. So I would go for the things that give you more bang for your buck, if you will, from a nutritionally dense standpoint. And then looking at portion size is important. And I think that's where a lot of times when people are eating things like pasta, say for instance, the whole plate has pasta on it, right? But a serving of pasta is half a cup or a one fourth cup uncooked. So that's just something I think that all of us in general need to look at is sometimes our plate might be imbalanced there. And so it's not about any specific food being really horrible. Um, Of course, unless it's like that processed grain that we're talking about. But, um, you know, things like quinoa, I recently did a, um, a post where I was using a uh, bean called lupini beans. I don't know if you've heard of those. But they're a very high protein and high fiber bean that you can use to eat on its own, or actually this was a crushed up version where I made like a kind of like a polenta out of this, right? Anytime you're getting more fiber, you're going to get more fullness so that when you're cutting calories, you don't feel as hungry, but you're also going to get those healthy gut bacteria going. So choosing grains with more fiber probably answers your question. I think there was a part of the question about foods to make sure to
0: have. Yeah. Or just, you know, Just for health. Well, I, I, I think I know the answer, but you know, for health and weight loss, I think there's something that's like above all others.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in general, eating real food and eating more plants is the way to be full and satiated while you're losing weight. And making sure that you're choosing a variety of proteins, you know, beans, legumes, uh, tofu, nuts, you know, all those things are going
0: to give you a a spectrum of nutrients, if you will. Colleen says she loves lupini beans. I like the name. I've never actually heard about them before. I just, I don't know if you can see the chat, but it's going so fast, but people are are saying very nice things about you. I'll read this one from Lulu. She says, Dr. Middle, It's a pleasure to hear her. She comes across as very kind and knowledgeable as well as gorgeous. And a couple of people said that as well, just so you know, in case you can't see the chat, you know. I
1: can't see it right now, but I'll definitely I I think
0: it'll stay there afterwards. Let me see if there's any more questions on that. Because it goes very, very fast. Sorry about that. Uh, Weight loss per week. Well, 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 here's one from Cindy. Will it be okay if I don't eat organic foods?
1: So, you know, there's certain rules I always say, number one, if you're eating real food and you're eating lots of fruits and veggies, that's a win first, as far as, you know, organic or not organic, I follow the rule. If it's something that I peel, then I'm not as concerned about the pesticide levels on the outside, because I'm going to eat the inside. If it's something like, you know, your strawberries, your um, kale, you know, certain foods that carry more pesticides or get sprayed with more pesticides. If your budget allows, then, you know, maybe you try to get organic with those. But, you know, in general, I think eating real food is a win, <laughs> so um, I don't um, I don't think it's always necessary to eat organic. But if you can, with those certain types of foods, I think it's beneficial.
0: Great. Right. So you're in Texas, so people could see you in person. Could they also see you virtually?
1: Yeah, so I currently hold my medical license in Texas. So I'm able to see anybody um, within the state of Texas. And I do offer virtual visits. And um, my I am planning to uh, expand in 2021. One of my goals is to start being able to offer my services in other states. Uh, But as a physician, we are bound by we have to only practice medicine in the states where we are licensed, where the person lives. Uh, But yeah, within the state of Texas,
0: I'm uh, definitely available
1: right now. That's great.
0: What do you think of, you know, I, I didn't know about this until I hosted this GI Health Summit, because I've heard about all the different gastric bypasses, that, whether they're, I know there's different kinds, but that's the kind where they permanently remove parts and you don't get them back. But I've been hearing from a couple of the GI doctors that were on the summit that there's these procedures that are, they're still invasive, but they 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 can They're not permanent. I I can't think of the name of them. There were three of them. What, What do you think of those? And how do you help a patient decide if they could just try, you know, eating a whole food plant based diet alone? Or should they try medicine? Should they try one of these surgeries or do everything at the same time?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's the endoscopic sleeve, which is a temporary sleeve that's put in. Of course, people have heard of lap bands, those have kind of fallen out of favor. Um, but yeah, basically, and then there's the balloon. you know, I think those are the three things that you're referring to. Um, I always look at where is a person starting, you know? So if they have never even tried a lifestyle change, then I think that's where we start. If somebody's BMI is, say, over 40, Right. And it's mostly excess body fat, not the muscle kind. Then, you know, you might start the conversation with hey, you know, we want to make these changes. We want to start changing how you're eating and all the other aspects that we talked about. But perhaps you also need to look at what your options are there because. It could be a useful tool in conjunction with what we're already doing and that would be like a gastric sleeve or a gastric bypass or a duodenal switch those are for people who have very high bmis like over 50 over 40. but if somebody is looking for those kind of procedures that might temporarily be a tool to get there i personally, you you know, recommend those once somebody has at least tried lifestyle modifications plus minus medication. But again, knowing that all these tools are not going to work as a standalone solution. So uh, we have to have that conversation. I personally don't do the procedures, so I would be referring them to either a surgeon or a gastroenterologist, who does, but um, I think that we just have to meet a person where they are, and if they haven't even tried the lifestyle and nutrition changes, then that's what we need to start with.
0: So Latif says, is there a test that can see what our, where our metabolism is? Can the cause of being an underweight female be a very fast metabolism?
1: <laughs> so there are tests. You know, first of all, there, we mentioned all these different tests to look at what your metabolic health is. There is a test called a resting metabolic rate, which you know you can basically um, do where they uh, have you breathe into a tube and they look at how much carbon dioxide you're you're emitting, and then they can do a calculation of what your resting metabolic rate is. Uh, so that can give you an idea of what your metabolic rate is which is determined by a few different things. One is your basal metabolic rate, which is just how much energy you burn at rest. There's the energy that we use to uh, process our food or to to digest. The part that's really different for a lot of people is their um, physical activity. And that's where that component can really make a difference. You know, there are studies ongoing and some that have been done that look at, well, does the gut bacteria determine your metabolism? Because maybe certain people extract more out of their food than others, because we all know people, let's be honest, who can kind of eat whatever they want (laughs) and they don't gain any weight, right? And so there could be this component there playing a role where certain people extract more or less energy out of their food, depending on what gut bacteria they have present. Um, And there's more to learn there that we don't know. Somebody's asking what city specifically in Texas are you at? So I'm in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, I'm in a suburb of Dallas called Frisco. I've
0: heard of that for some reason, I don't know why. So Colleen says, how do you feel about fasting for weight loss? I've interviewed, doctors that that's all they do, like Dr. Goldhammer, Dr. Gershfeld, Dr. Sabatino, and they do not, they recommend fasting for like getting rid of diseases, but not for weight loss. So curious what you think.
1: So I think there's a role for fasting um, as a weight loss strategy, um, and I do incorporate that into my treatment plans if it's appropriate, it's really important to recognize that if you have an unhealthy relationship with food or if you've dealt with anorexia and you know, eating disorders, um, fasting is typically not something that I incorporate into their treatment plan because we're, the idea is not restriction, right? So fasting is a different way to get to a calorie restriction. And for a lot of people, and I practice fasting in my own life as well, Um, It can be a very uh, good tool to create the calorie deficit, because say, if you're aiming for, I don't know, 1200 calories in a day, well, if you're distributing that amount over 16, 18 hours, your meals are not very big, perhaps, (laughs) versus when you fast, you actually don't feel as hungry as you get into fasting, and you become uh, basically to the point where you just say, well, I eat during this time and I fast during this time. And then you're able to kind of be more intuitive during your eating time to just say, you know what? I'm gonna eat two meals. They're going to look amazing. They're gonna look like this plate that we're talking about where it has a diversity of the plants on there and your plant-based proteins and your you know, whole foods, you know, whatever you've put on there. And then you eat that and you then eat your second meal and 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 you're done. So it's important to recognize that the the majority of fasting and its role in weight loss is going to be to create a calorie restriction. So fasting is kind of a broad term, you know, there's intermittent fasting, which is like time-restricted eating. There's alternate day fasting, there's five-two fasting, which is like you know, where you have a certain number of reduced calories one day, and then you feast the next day. So there's different ways to fast, but it can be a tool in weight loss in the right person. And, um, you know, there are doctors like Dr. Fung, Dr. Jason Fung, there's Dr. Uh, Walter Longo, you know, uh, Dr. Walter Longo uh, has the fasting mimicking diet, which is basically like It's based on studies that were done on mice and they have one study on humans and it's a low calorie diet that is plant-based and um, it's a five-day fast. It's not really for weight loss per se. It's more for metabolic health and to uh, kind of manipulate some of the pathways that are involved in metabolism as well as aging and cell repair, but you do lose weight with it too. So there is a role there. Um, for the right person.
0: Terrific. So what would you say to somebody that's given up hope that they could ever lose weight?
1: I would say, um, number one, take the judgment off yourself because it's very complicated. And some of the things are in your hand and some are beyond your just willpower. And it's a medical issue. Um, Finally, Within the last 10 years, the uh, American Medical Association finally recognized obesity and excess body weight as a medical condition. So we don't blame people for other medical issues and we shouldn't blame people for this either. So that's number one. Number two, get help and get help from somebody who's going to follow science and, and know that you are a complete amazing person regardless, but that there is help out there and that you can make changes, but sometimes it takes a very comprehensive
0: approach and you don't need to do it on your own. That's wonderful. Florence says, oh, excuse me, sorry about that. Florence said, will you open up a center like the True North Health Center? I guess like a, that's like a live in place. <laughs>
1: I have a lot of dreams and uh, you know things that I'm thinking about. Um, you know I there's just me and uh, I'm a mom and a, a wife and I have all these things going on. but I am very passionate about this and I am excited about what the next year um, I'm gonna be starting some lifestyle medicine programs that are virtual. I'm planning to, Uh, start a podcast. I want to be able to reach more people to really spread this message of metabolic health and lifestyle medicine. I am planning to roll out courses that people will be able to uh, enroll in. So there's a lot of exciting things coming up. And maybe that will shape up into a center of sorts at some point. Um, It's exciting to see where things
0: will go. Well, how can we follow you or find out more about your work?
1: Yeah, so I'm on YouTube. I do have a channel, but of course I haven't developed it like you have yet, Um, but I have some videos there. Um, The best way is number one on my website. I have a newsletter and a blog that people can subscribe to, to stay up to date on things. It's RadiantHealthDallas.com, And then they can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. All the handles are the same. It's at MD.
0: Well, great. Thank you. And that is also in the chat right now, and it's in the show notes. It was such a pleasure meeting you. I really appreciate your passion and your compassion, and, and thank you for the work you do.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on and for all the work that you do. It's just amazing to be able to meet other people who have the same passions.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 3 p.m. Pacific time today when we have a bonus show. My guest is Vegan Cupid and we are doing a live vegan dating show. Thanks again, doctor.